Welcome to Connect with Success with Dr. Lynette Scatiswatilla, where we help connect you with knowledge. Our mission is to lead you to a new and exciting way of understanding, responding to, and helping all those with autism. We hope to expand your thinking about how to best serve these amazing people and to support you in your daily struggles and celebrations. Welcome, everyone, to the 10th episode of Connect with Success, a podcast built around the success approach and the person who coined it, Dr. Lynette Scottiswatilla. Today's episode is very special because we're going to be presenting our second successful synthesis session. In our synthesis sessions, we provide a review of the key ideas in three or four episodes that were previously aired to help remind you of the information that was presented. As we visit the information, we'll help you integrate or synthesize past concepts in something useful for you in your particular situation. So let's, uh, let's start revisiting. What are we going to be revisiting today, Dr. Lennon? Well, in our uh, successful synthesis session one, which was episode 105, we reminded our listeners of the terms transdisciplinary, which was episode 101, readiness, episode 102, sense-making, episode 103, and the sensory systems, which was 104. And those are all very helpful. We're always going to be building on the success approach. Theories and methods build on each other. Mm -hmm. So in today's second synthesis, we are going to revisit the ideas of information processing, social pragmatic theory, and developmental model. Great. So what would you say are some of the key points from uh, episodes 106 through 108 that can help our listeners further synthesize that idea? Well, the first one from 106, which was information processing, I think our listeners will remember the term schema. And schema is really nothing more or nothing less than a mental representation for an idea or a set of events. And the way that most of us develop schema is through experience. We have the item and we're either looking at a feature of it or an attribute of it and we're relying on our past to sort of build on what we know about it. And that all happens very naturally and normally. Um, but sometimes when we have special needs individuals or especially children with autism, they have what the listeners will remember is a gestalt learning style, which means that they kind of learn things in a whole sort of way. And they have a hard time generalizing. So what you might remember us really hitting hard is when we expose our kids to new ideas or new concepts, we have to make sure that we're giving them the opportunity to sort of generalize from the get-go. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, they think that, um, you know, there's only one way to go to grandma's house, and it's two lefts, a right, and a left. Um, and that sort of gestalt memorization of an experience like getting to grandma's can stop them from being adaptive when there is a detour one day, and you have to take two lefts, a left, another left, a right, and a left. Um, so we want to help our audience be reminded that this is neurological. This is how our brains are wired. If we can learn in a um, sequential way, then we have a good outcome for schemas, and we can access information that's been memorized, and we can recall and use it. Kids that have a gestalt learning style don't always have that ability to generalize. And so they're going to recall information by associations that we don't even think of, like how many lefts and how many rights there is to grandma's house. We don't retain that, those of us who are sequential learners. So that's just an important difference to remember. 
And I, if, if I memory serves correctly, then um, we moved into the social pragmatic theory. Mm-hmm. Where we talked a little bit about reciprocity. Yes, we did. And a lot of people don't understand that reciprocity is nothing more than a ping and a pong to um, a relationship or to an interaction. And um, one of the things that we always want to try to remember is that communication, first of all, has a lot of different purposes or it serves a lot of different functions. Sometimes we're requesting, sometimes we're protesting, we're commenting, greeting, sharing ideas, expressing ourselves. Um, and so we all have these preconceived notions of what our interaction is going to be about or how it's going to go. And we have to remember that individuals with autism don't always have that same perspective for what communication is all about. Um, And so we first have to make sure that we understand what are they looking at? Where is their attention? And if we can join them in their attention, we're going to be able to interact much better. And that's kind of foreign for most people. Mm -hmm. So we have to remind our listeners, and we will as we go on, of little examples of that. And then we moved uh, into developmental theory, right? We did. And one of the things that we really emphasize in developmental model is the importance of play, 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 play is the child's work. And through play, all sorts of things happen. Motor skills develop. Cognitive ideas are understood and uh, grasped and and processed. Um, And socialization, you know, and understanding how one thing impacts the other and how the environment influences us. All these things are sort of learned through play. And that's important to know because sometimes we don't engage our kids in play. We're too busy working on toileting or trying to get them to talk or trying to get them to listen or socialize. But if we can play with them in a way that meets their needs at their level, always, always going from their perspective, we can expand new concepts through that play. All right, welcome back to Connect with Success. We're going to head into the meat and potatoes of this episode in this particular synthesis session. We're going to do something a little different. We're going to take a look at the last three uh, models and theories that we've looked at in our episodes. And uh, Dr. Lynette's going to try and give us how it can kind of be woven into one good example. Uh, So, Dr. Lynette, what what would that look like if we started looking at information processing, if we're looking at developmental model, um, we're looking at social pragmatic Help us out. What, what would that look like? Okay. So what we do here at ITC, as many people know, first of all, we're, we're a teaching facility in addition to being a training facility and a treatment center and all that stuff. Um, and we therefore have a lot of students that we've entertained over the years, hundreds and hundreds of students at the college level. And right now we have two amazing students from Gannon University, which is in Erie, um, and they're the master's level OT program. And so as their supervisor, their fieldwork supervisor, I'm, I'm in the trenches and I'm explaining things to them. So a good example of how some of these theories work together came to us as we were working with a little three-year-old, actually I think he's going on four, um, who needs help playing. He's very high energy. Mm-hmm. Um, He doesn't have great tone, so he's a little floppy, kind of thin child, beautifully excited, beautifully engaged, really wanting to live his life in a high-energy kind of way, and that comes out in play. So automatically, we're thinking developmental model because we're talking about play. And so the students were introducing these activities, and I asked them, um, what is the goal of your activity so that when I take over to show you how I would do it, I reach that goal? And the students just wanted him to learn how to uh, play with a game that required holding a tool. It was a magnet tool shaped like a little bird with a long beak. 
and they wanted them to he want they wanted the child to take this little beak thing and um, align it with a worm quote unquote little wooden worms that had a metal piece on the end that served as the other part of the magnet and pull these little worms out of a pretend log it's a very cute game and so there's different colored worms and such and um, only one little tool of this magnetic beak and so um, knowing this child the way that I did, I wanted to make sure that the students were first meeting the needs of his body, okay? So postural readiness, okay? Way back to the original Absolutely. episode of 101. Um, but before we can play, we have to be able to attend and reach and manipulate the materials. So the first thing I did was help this little guy sit, and he did. And then the magnet, this little bird beak, was introduced. And he took it, and he inverted it so that the beak was in his hand versus exposed. And the sort of mallet handle end mm -hmm. was exposed and available. So he chose to bang it hmm. on this little plastic wooden log in which these worms are housed or embedded when they're dropped in just right. Um, and so I immediately thought, this is not okay for him to proceed using this tool in this way because the tool, in fact, is not a hammer. Mm. So at that point, the option was to go get a hammer and ball activity. And um, a lot of people have the opportunity to have those little cobblestone sets where you can, you know, hammer away or uh, Discovery Toys makes a lot of bang-a-ball sorts of activities. That's a real common pre-construction kind of activity for mm. kids his age. Um, and because one wasn't handy, I had to reshape his experience so that he almost forgot that he was banging. I had to manipulate the tool in his hand so that the beak end versus the holding end was exposed and could approximate the magnet. And as I thought about the best way to do this, I realized I'm going to have to rearrange it in his hand. Mm -hmm. And that's going to feel like I'm taking it away. So all this is coming to me instantly as I'm deciding how to manage this accidental banging and I decide to quickly sweep in with both of my hands over his quickly rotate the the toy in his hand or the tool and bring it to a worm that I held in my hand mm -hmm. so he could see how the end of the worm and the end of the beak go together. And all this is before associative play. So you're really building yeah. the schema of what this play is going to look like. That's right. Okay. That's right. He's not even including me as a partner. I'm a mechanical assistant at this point. Mm -hmm. So he can succeed with this game and learn how to take the little guys out, these little worms in and out um, without banging. So the point of the story is there's so much that goes into setting a child up to succeed from postural to curbing maybe their original idea for it, but without doing anything to disrupt their initiative, um, being careful not to reprimand or correct them. And I said to the students, it, probably after the fact, so many people would have said, no, 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 no bang. Mm -hmm. And it's natural because you're trying to get them to stop. But we don't realize as adults that our power doesn't come from negation of something or stopping them. It comes from readjusting or um, reshaping their experience so that you're actually making contact with the material the way the material is designed to be connected with or connected to. And so that was a very easy 
quick maneuver that I did. And he realized, oh, this, this connects to this worm. That's kind of cool. Now, he still wanted to bang on it. And every time I reshaped it so that he only had the experience mm-hmm. of the tip of the beak joining to that magnetic counterpart of the worm. And at one point, he was holding it up, sort of dangling it and watching the worm kind of move. Um, and it was a really good outcome that could have been really, really, really wrong or not so good for the child if we didn't reshape it because he would experience that as a banging opportunity or banging activity when there really isn't anything about it that should be banged. In fact, if you do bang the, f- the little worms into the receiving log, this little mm-hmm. plastic log in the holes, they go down so deep you can't retrieve them. Oh. So, and that's uh, something we didn't have to encounter because we shaped it properly. Nice. So the, the social part of all of that is I would also balance that with me shaping or showing him my turn. So after a couple of times of quickly intercepting his mechanics, I would say, Miss Lynette's turn, and I would take a worm out and say, yay, I found it, and bring it to him almost like as an offering or a gift. Mm -hmm. And he'd take the worm and explore the worm. So it's very quick, very two to three seconds of my turn, not taking it from him, but bringing it to him Mm -hmm. after I got it so he knew he was going to get something. And the first time I did it, the students noticed, he was like, like leaning forward and trying to almost take it from me, but I moved so fast and brought it to him that my second episode of fishing for a worm myself, he sat the whole time and just kind of knew that the worm was coming. Was coming his way. Without me saying anything about sitting or waiting or anything more, I just worked in a fast enough way that his experience was, I'm going to get something out of this. Right. So it's very refreshing to have that happen so fast. Great. So then tying this back to information processing. Mm Mm-hmm. The schema that this little guy was able to develop wasn't a schema reinforced for banging. He already has that schema, right? Mm -hmm. It was a more sophisticated, higher developmental level or higher developmental skill of joining two parts that need to be approximated, which is a very distinct visual motor task for the sake of removing something. So it's almost the opposite of banging. Instead of putting things together, he was removing something um, that was in a hole that the magnet allowed him to pull out. And that's very different. That information processing could have gone, again, the wrong direction, and he'd be stuck in just a kid that can bang very well and not a kid that could take it to the next level. Right. And so, I mean, it really does tie in all of these various models and theories that is all part of the success approach. I mean, you even took it right back to square one when we talked about observing the readiness to learn. Yep. And it is square one. And and there's so many squares that come after square one. Now we're at the sixth theory that we've shared. We have two more important ones coming up in future podcasts. And we're just following the exact format of our training program Mm -hmm. where all the seven theories of the success approach are introduced in a very linear way. But many of our learners our our parents and our uh, professionals that enroll in our class say that it's so sequential they learn best by doing sort of the basics first. So um, in developmental model, we talk about having a solid foundation Mm -hmm. on which to build the house. And that's what they've experienced as learners in the class, that the foundation is solid because you're talking about neurology, you're talking about neurodevelopment, you're talking about readiness, and then all the skills that come from that well-integrated, ready body and brain are all of the other six theories that we add to that foundation. And I love that you started with the idea this was going to be a developmental model situation, 
And but then and after looking at what was happening, I'm like, mm, we have to roll it back to yes. a couple of pieces and kind of start yes. from there and then work our way up. Yes. And I knew to do that, Dr. Smith, because as I gave this little guy the materials, which some people don't do, some people take it and do it themselves to show the kid what to do. I wasn't interested in showing him what to do. I wanted to see what he would do mm-hmm. because that tells me what? Where he's at. Where he's at. And you are the king of knowing. You have to know your students. Have to know them. And this is what we do. We These are our students. These are our patients. These are our kids, our students. And so <clears throat> by giving him the tools, literally, I was able to see what tools he needed from me to build the next level up. And he did right before our very eyes. And, you know, one of the students in her very honest um, reflection was just shaking her head after with this big grin. And she said, Dr. Scott Tiswatella, how did you know exactly what he was going to do? It's so cool that you predicted every single thing he was going to do. And, you know, I take that for granted because I've done it and a lot of veterans out there can relate to what I'm talking about, teachers, therapists, whatever intervention models you, you follow as a, as a uh, professional. You kind of get used to, yeah, I guess I do do that pretty second nature, don't I? Um, but in the success approach, you don't have to be a professional to be able to do that well or to be able to do it second nature because everything is about the child's perspective. And so if you're in their perspective and you know what you want them to do or develop or learn in your activity, then you almost foresee how to get them there. And so, of course, you're predicting because you're, you're forecasting, you're eliciting like the success approach acronym says, mm-hmm. eliciting that supported sense-making, eliciting their conceptualization. Um, and that's why we say we're always a couple steps ahead of the kid, because we have to be for them to land where we want them to land and get that nugget of knowledge. And individualized. So it's authentic yes. to that, it's true to that person because it is meeting them where they're at, which is what the success approach is all about. Mm-hmm. Um, we say that a lot in education in terms of differentiation, and, and we look at it in this grand scope of how can we possibly differentiate for 30 kids in the room. Mm-hmm. But it just takes a lot of planning, a lot of um, strategic planning mm-hmm. as the success approach brings to it. Mm-hmm. Individualization is where it's at. Mm-hmm. And I think that when you don't have individualization, there are some learners who are lost on certain things or get things um, processed differently or slower or in a way that really isn't fair to their God-given potential to grasp something because it wasn't truly, um, no one was thinking about Taylor making the content to them. Right. And that's that leaves them um, something to be desired in the learning process and can actually turn kids off to learning. Mm-hmm. You know, my um, one of my people in my family who's now much older um, had a learning disability when this was 60 years ago. And um, I remember like, not having a very good feeling from this individual about school because it was a turnoff. You Mm -hmm. know, he couldn't grasp what was being shared. He even went to multiple different schools at the time, and he ended up being a very, very skilled person in the blue-collar world, which is great. There's such an important need for that kind of skill. Um, But it was because he could and would learn through Mm hands-on, and that kind of work tends to lend itself to those kind of learners, and that's where he ended up. And that's where he should have ended up. But Without the, the drama and right. the tears and the right. frustration, that could have done, been a lot easier for him to land there. If they would have re- recognized that he learned relatability mm. as opposed to just facts and figures. And, right. Because it was too abstract right. for those, that's for some, why, some, some individuals. That's why I love at the um, high school level, and you're so in the trenches of um, knowing this kind of access for kids, they have things like 
shop and, you mm-hmm. know, woodworking and computer work and hands-on stuff. Right. Um, and that's really good for those people who are haptic learners, you know, hands-on learners. And it's not everybody, but it's enough that they are putting programs in and have been for years to uh, reach those individuals as well. Well, that was a wonderful way to, to synthesize um, in, in a very concise manner some of these theories that we've been talking about. As you mentioned, we have two more coming up in future episodes. So we'll be right back to kind of wrap up what we heard today. So as we uh, start to address this, the wrap up for this episode in this particular synthesis session, we looked at the three uh, theories and models um, of, of recent. We've talked about uh, information processing. We've looked at... Um, social pragmatic. We've looked at uh, developmental model as well. And what I, again, I'm going to say this uh, again, what I love about this is how all of these interweave with one another Mm -hmm. to make a successful plan for someone who needs a little more development in those skills, Mm -hmm. right? And so how would you wrap up this episode for us with these three theories? So I think what's really important about information processing is the idea of schema and how everything we do is going to either help a child learn the right schema or the wrong schema. It's equal opportunity learning, good (laughs) and not so good. So we really have to be careful about how we support children to make sense of what's happening around them. Um, And one of those things is how to interact and socialize. So the social pragmatic learning that comes from schema and experience um, has to be at their level, at their readiness, so that they can actually have the ping and the pong, the reciprocity of interaction in a way that's meaningful to them. Mm -hmm. And as they do, they're naturally going to develop. So this developmental notion that we keep talking about, that one skill happens first and then skill is um, acquired in a very linear way, everything builds better. A house is built stronger with a solid foundation. And I feel like one of the things that Maria said, um, Maria Watilla, in her last episode, episode 109, was her experience with growth. And growth is really the outcome of the success approach. Um, And I feel that because we're so interested in children getting better, um, we want to support that growth and development, but we have to do it in a way that is genuine. Mm -hmm. You don't get it out of a book. You get it by knowing your child, understanding the developmental process, which is why in our class, developmental theories hit so hard, and all the differences or nuances about how children with autism development, which is where information processing and schema and socialization come in as well. Yeah, it makes it worthwhile for them. Yeah. Um, and it's one of our, fr- our friend, Don Kendrick, her favorite yeah. word is authentic, raw, right? That's yes, real. And, and right. getting <laughs> right back to what's important to them and how they can relate it to that practice to make it meaningful for them. That's right. And, you know, just so you know, and I love this episode because you gave us a great visualization of all three of those theories and models with the one example of the student that you were working with so much so that I was visualizing what this toy even looked like. So if you were doing the same thing, we're going to put a picture of this toy in the show notes because my curiosity is piqued and I want to be able to, to see what it looks like. Yes. And I think down the road, we may actually be able to include some videos going forward so you can see some of this in action. So stay tuned to that in the future as well. We hope that you learned something today to help you on your journey with autism. We'll share more on our next Connect with Success podcast. Until then, expect success. The Success Approach is a registered service mark protected under intellectual property law. Unless otherwise specified, all music, audiovisual, 
and proprietary content shared in this podcast is property of Autism Productions, LLC, and its sister agency, Integrations Treatment Center. The use of this content is unlawful without the expressed written consent of aforementioned agency. For more information about The Success Approach, please go to our website at www.thesuccessapproach.org.